You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm David McKechnie. In the US, the race for the White House took a turn this weekend when Hillary Clinton became unwell at a 9-11 memorial event and was then caught on film stumbling into her campaign van. It subsequently emerged that she'd been diagnosed with pneumonia last Friday. With less than two months of the election, does the incident threaten to torpedo the Clinton campaign? Simon Carswell, our Washington correspondent, will tell us. Later on, our European correspondent Suzanne Lynch will look ahead to a State of the Union speech being delivered by European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker in Strasbourg on Wednesday, as well as the EU summit taking place in Bratislava this Friday. Plus, Guy Hedgeco joins from the Toro de la Vega bull fiesta in the Spanish town of Tordesillas, where the killing of bulls was banned in a landmark decision earlier this year. Okay, but first, Simon Carswell, you were at a Donald Trump rally in North Carolina last night. How hot a topic was the state of Hillary Clinton's health among the people you spoke to? Uh, it was certainly spoken about uh, by the people at the rally in Asheville in Western North Carolina last night. People were more vexed by her remarks and her comments about half of Donald Trump's being a basket of deplorables. But people were talking about the health issue when I spoke to them. Um, they, the fact that she has a health problem or she she is ill is not the main issue. It's the fact uh, they're they're annoyed at the fact that she had been diagnosed with pneumonia on Friday, but it was only after she uh, had to leave, abruptly leave this 9-11 memorial service on Sunday morning that her campaign came out and admitted that she'd been diagnosed um, with pneumonia. They didn't like the fact that she didn't disclose it at the time and that it kind of feeds into the view that Hillary Clinton is is a secretive uh, candidate and it's someone that they cannot trust. As you say, we've heard from Clinton's opponents that it's not so much her current poor health that's the problem, so much as the fact that she chose not to reveal it, as we can hear in this clip. I think this is another case of the the cover-up being worse than the crime. If it is what they say it is, this is totally benign. They explained it right away. And this, just as everybody can see, it just adds to the impression that these people are simply incapable of telling the truth, the simple truth. And on things where they're not really culpable, they should easily be able to explain it. They just, they find a way to make themselves make her look untrustworthy. And that's where the damage is. That was Charles Krauthammer, the conservative commentator. Now, from this distance, it seems a little bizarre that a link is being made between this and her handling of the classified emails. But as you say, uh, last night in North Carolina, that, that link was being made. Do you think that that incident is feeding into the narrative that Trump has been pushing and, and will have a wider impact on the race? Uh, I think it is. I mean, the criticism, that, as you say, that's Krauthammer. He's a conservative commentator, but Criticism is coming from within uh, Democratic circles as well. Uh, David Axelrod, Barack Obama's former chief political strategist, he criticized this uh, this shroud of secrecy that surrounds her campaign. He tweeted that antibiotics can take care of pneumonia, but what's the cure for an unhealthy pension for privacy that repeatedly creates unnecessary problems? And I think he's right. Um, There is a trust issue. Uh, Clinton does have a trust issue. Uh, and poll after poll shows that uh, she, uh, Americans uh, don't don't think she's honest, don't think she's trustworthy. There was a poll, the latest CNN Orc poll last week, uh, found that 50% said that Trump is more honest and trustworthy, and just 35% say that Clinton is uh, can be trusted and is is honest. So those are really poor figures, and explains uh, a lot of Clinton's uh, unpopularity. 
Sure. I mean, what what can she do to, to regain that trust? I know her team is, is talking about releasing more of her medical records this week. I mean, that probably won't be enough. Looking in, in the long term, what can she do to, to sort of put some of those fears to bed? Well, it's a very tricky one, and it's something that she's tried to address for some time. She's come out before saying she's not a natural politician like uh, her husband or Barack Obama. But I think on this issue and on the health uh, problem that she has, um, she needs to get out in front of the press and take some questions at it. And throughout this campaign, we've seen her showing uh, deep reluctance to hold press conferences. Now, that's changed in the last couple of weeks where she's had the press traveling with her on the same plane and she's gone back to the back of the plane to speak to the press. So she is doing more press conferences, but she really needs to take um, questions on it from um, a number of reporters, not just one-to-one interviews, which she prefers to do. She was interviewed uh, on CNN by Anderson Cooper last night, and she kind of explained away um, the fact that they didn't disclose that she had pneumonia, saying she just didn't think it was going to be that big a deal, which again feeds into this problem that she has, that uh, she's not being open, uh, she's presuming that the, uh, and feeding into this Republican criticism that the rules that apply to others don't apply to her. So she really needs to be get out more and be more open. And to counter what Axelrod is saying is to remove the shroud of secrecy and to t- start talking more and be more uh, transparent in her campaign. Is there a little bit of a sense of paranoia around the, the Clinton campaign or, or obviously the, the Clintons have a long history with the media going back to, to Bill's presidency? I mean, is that is that really the problem that, that, that they just really don't trust that relationship? I think it's a big factor in the relationship between Clinton and the press. Um, you know, it goes back to her claims that she's been this, she and her husband have been subject to this vast right wing conspiracy. And I think they they play to that as well in this election because of the involvement of the likes of Steve Bannon, of formerly of Breitbart, the uh, conservative provocative, provocative uh, website, involved his involvement in Trump's campaign. So she is reluctant to talk to the press. But I think on issues that are as important as this, these are two of the oldest candidates running for the U.S. presidency. It's a, a stressful office. You need to show that you're in full health to be able to hold the office. Um, she needs to get out and talk more and speak more to the press. Um, and she has been very, very reluctant. And it's come very late in the day that she started doing more press conferences. It was more than 250 days um, before she held a press conference just last week. Uh, so that's quite a length of time um, for a person who's running to be president of the United States. In terms of public perceptions, I suppose you could argue that her, her decision to plough on through a gruelling campaign schedule uh, despite being ill, showed showed a certain degree of guts and fortitude, and that might appeal to the public. Is there is there any sense of that, or 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 is it is it just the negative side of of, of illness has been highlighted? Well, it's really just the negative side. I mean, we have seen some efforts by campaign surrogates. Uh, Vice President Joe Biden was out on the campaign trail in Charlotte, North Carolina, where I am uh, th- this week, and he was saying, you know, she ha- she has been involved in a in a grueling. Uh, job before as Secretary of State. Uh, she famously travelled a million miles in that role. And uh, Biden was explaining, well, Clinton's health is good and trying to play down the fact that people get pneumonia and people take antibiotics, you rest and you get on with it. So uh, I think it's very much more on the uh, the criticism comes from the lack of transparency and the fact that she hasn't been open rather than the fact that she has pneumonia. Um, it's It's a problem for her not so much her recovery, but that she recovers from the fact that she can be more transparent in this campaign. Yeah, as you mentioned, I suppose by historical standards, these two candidates are old. And do you think it's it's fair, as, as Trump suggests, to scrutinise the health of them of these uh, two not young uh, presidential candidates? Absolutely. I mean, Trump's seventy. If he would be, if he's elected, he'd be the oldest president in history. Ronald Reagan 
is the oldest so far. And if uh, Clinton is elected, she turned 62 two weeks before the election. So she'd be the second oldest um, if she was elected. And Trump, Trump himself implicitly acknowledges this uh, by the fact that he has said he, like Clinton, is going to release more medical records this week. It was um, much ridicule of uh, Trump's uh, doctor, Dr. Harold Bornstein, admitting um, coming out earlier this year saying that uh, Trump would be the healthiest individual ever elected to the presidency. Uh, but he since admitted that he wrote that uh, synopsis of um, Trump's health in five minutes while the uh, candidate had a limousine waiting outside. So Trump acknowledges that health is a big issue. And I think the fact that he's been a bit more reserved on this issue, he hasn't uh, hit Clinton as he has on other issues um, if, since this diagnosis came out. Um, it shows the fact that, well, you know, he has, he has uh, there are concerns and issues around his own health that he has to acknowledge with uh, releasing these new medical records. It is certainly very uncharacteristic that he hasn't been on the attack either on Twitter or elsewhere since the reports the weekend. What accounts for this? I mean, this this slightly more presidential behaviour and his, his comments that she should get well soon and all, is it? I, I assume he's taking new advice. Well, he is, and it comes down to the fact that he's hired um, a veteran Republican pollster, Kellyanne Conway. Um, he's taking much more careful steps. He's being um, much more measured. He's not shooting from the hip like he had in uh, like he'd done during the Republican primary. And Kellyanne Conway uh, recognizes that he needs to appeal more to middle ground voters, more moderate voters, to more female voters, where he's performing pretty poorly uh, with uh, so far in the campaign. And she's a s smart pollster. She's worked with uh, many Republicans in the past, Newt Gingrich and uh, Trump's own running mate, Mike Pence. Uh, she previously supported Ted Cruz in this election. So She's really been a moderating influence uh, since she stepped up and became campaign manager uh, last month in the third reshuffle of, of Trump's presidential campaign. So we've seen a, a very different Trump in that in many of his speeches since uh, she's taken that more uh, pivotal role in his campaign team. Although he's been biting his lip on, on that subject, um, as you say, the basket of deplorables comment uh, by, by Hillary the other day um, was prominent uh, in North Carolina last night. Do you think that has potential to be to actually be a bigger and more divisive factor, in fact, than her health in the weeks ahead? I think so. And certainly we heard an awful lot about that um, at the North Carolina rally last night in Nashville. Supporters were wearing I'm deplorable uh, T-shirts. One man was dressed in a basket with deplorable written on it. And at one point during the rally, Trump invited some supporters up, um, everyday Americans up onto the stage to explain why they weren't deplorable. He's 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 been very effective on hitting Clinton on this. And Clinton has expressed regret for that remark that she made. And it is potentially very damaging. Uh, Trump has likened it to the 47 percent comment that Mitt Romney made in 2012 that damaged his campaign so badly. Um, and Trump hit her again on the issue on the remarks last month, uh, um, last week in his uh, rally last night. He said that. You know, he said that Clinton has called uh, Americans every name in the book, racist, sexist, xenophobic, Islamophobic. And really, he's trying to show that Clinton is tarring all his supporters um, very negatively. And it's it's proved, proving very effective. Certainly the biggest cheers of the night last night at the rally were in response to some of these remarks that he was making in response to her comments. Really a very surprising error from somebody of her experience who can obviously sit in front of committees for hour after hour and take take many questions without making that kind of mistake. Um, but looking ahead uh, with the, f the first deba debate uh, between the two candidates on September the 26th, 
Um, it's clear Hillary Clinton needs to return to full health very quickly and obviously hit the campaign trail very quickly. How important is it that the public see a more robust Hillary in that opening debate? Well, I think it's very important. And the fact that she cancelled uh, campaign events in California today and yesterday shows that they are taken very seriously and that she has to make a full recovery. Uh, the debate on the 26th of September is key. Um, it's going to be one of the most watched debates ever. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see the tactics by, played by both candidates. Um, and uh, given the health issues that she's had, she really has to come out really swinging and fighting and in full health. And just just finally, looking at the at the wider picture, um, uh, despite these terrible few days for for Hillary Clinton's campaign, is it fair to say she, say she still has a, a much clearer path to the the two hundred and seventy electoral votes she needs to win the White House? She certainly has an advantage in the electoral college system. We're talking about uh, advantage of about fifty votes on the path to the two hundred and seventy finish line that she needs that the winning candidate needs to reach. Um, the national polls are sh- showing a much uh, tighter race. Um, Trump has narrowed the gap on Clinton, narrowed her lead to about three to four points from about almost eight about a month ago. Um, but if you look at some of the battleground states, uh, it's not quite so close. For example, Clinton is doing very well in Pennsylvania, a key target state for Trump and his um, anti, uh, anti, his anti-trade deal message, um, his appeal to blue-collar workers. She's also doing very well in Virginia, another battleground state that has um, that has swung Republican in the past, and she's doing well in Colorado. But the race is very tight in some of the bigger swing states, the likes of Ohio, Florida, North Carolina here. Um, but there's also some interesting uh, movement in the polls where uh, Clinton is challenging Trump in some traditional Republican states, the likes of Arizona and Georgia, which haven't voted for a Democrat in many, many years. Um, But uh, Trump is running Clinton close in states that have gone Democrat in the most recent past, the likes of Nevada and Iowa uh, and New Hampshire. So it's it's a very uh, tight race, very even race at the moment. So something like the debate will be pivotal in the outcome of this presidential election. Plenty to look forward to. Thank you, Simon Carswell. You're listening to the Irish Times. We're now joined by Suzanne Lynch in Strasbourg. Suzanne, it's a busy week on the diplomatic front in Europe, beginning with Jean-Claude Juncker delivering a State of Union speech in Strasbourg tomorrow. Can you tell us about the significance of the speech and what he's expected to say? Yes, well, every year at around this time, the head of the European Commission gives this uh, very important speech known as a State of the Union speech in which they set out their vision for the EU Now, this year, it's taking on extra significance, if you like, because uh, it's going to be the first time we really hear uh, some uh, some substantial response from Jean-Claude Juncker about his views on the EU since uh, the British vote in June to leave the European Union. Um, It also, the timing of this is also interesting because it comes two days before the special summit on Friday in Bratislava. This was convened in the wake of the Brexit vote also um, for the remaining 27 EU leaders to uh, regroup and assess the way forward for Europe in uh, in the wake of Brexit. So I suppose with these two uh, big announcements on Wednesday and Friday, it's really the first time we're going to be seeing a message from the European Union about what next after Brexit. Sure, and, and I, know, I know there's obviously talk uh, this week, plenty of reports, on the idea of a security and defence cooperation being mm-hmm. deepened around Europe. What, what, what's he expected to say on that and, and what, what might be on the table on Friday? 
Yeah, um, what we're expecting is a very strong statement from both Jean-Claude Juncker on Wednesday and indeed from the summit on Friday to reinforce cooperation across the EU uh, in terms of defence, security, counter-terrorism, those kind of issues. Um, and Donald Tusk, the head of the European Council uh, and his team, have been particularly pushing this. Uh, they believe uh, that... In, looking at different analysis from different member states, that terrorism and security have now, has now become the number one concern for most citizens across Europe. Of course, maybe it's not necessarily the case in Ireland, but for a lot of uh, countries in mainland Europe which have seen uh, recent terrorist attacks, etc., coupled with the migration crisis, uh, there has been a call for the European Union uh, to take seriously the threat of terrorism and the whole issue of protecting the external borders. So that is going to be uh, one of the focuses on Friday, and indeed from Jean-Claude Juncker tomorrow. He's also, he's also expected to talk maybe about... Uh, his investment plan about, you know, tackling the, the still low growth levels in the EU. But we are expecting a stronger emphasis on security. And historically, Jean-Claude Juncker has in the past expressed support for the idea eventually of, of a common EU army. Uh, now, this is not what's going to be presented this week, but it is going to be moved towards further cooperation in this whole area of defence and security. So what, what sort of moves are we talking about? Obviously, uh, mm. a European army would be quite an eye-watering prospect from an Irish perspective, mm. but can you talk through some of the other, the other ideas that are being floated? Yes, I suppose one of the crucial uh, issues to keep in mind is that what the EU will be proposing will be done within the remit of the existing treaty, within the Lisbon Treaty, if you like. And as part of this multi strong approach between uh, Tusk on the Council side, Juncker at the Commission. We've also seen the EU's High Representative Federica Mogherini. She's been uh, doing a lot of work on the EU's global security uh, strategy. Um, and she has, has, she last, earlier this month, spoke to EU ambassadors and kind of set out a few parameters. And she mentioned the fact that there are already provisions in the Lisbon Treaty that allows countries that want to, to participate and to share resources. It's called the concept of structured military cooperation. And she's saying that provision is already there in the treaty, and yet the EU has never deployed that. Um, so in that sense, anything that's going to be proposed will... You know, will take account of Ireland's concerns, obviously, and will not will only be able to take place within the existing legal framework. So, in sense in sense of specifics, we may see a move towards, as I say, this idea of enhanced cooperation between those countries who want to uh, increase uh, defence cooperation. Um, there are plans from the Franco-German side uh, for perhaps a new military headquarters in Brussels that would run different missions. For example, at the moment, there is the mission in the Mediterranean, the search and rescue, rescue mission. That's operating from different national capitals. Under this proposal, there would be a new military headquarters that would plan those kind of operations. And then we will also see, perhaps from Juncker on Wednesday, an emphasis on defence spending, uh, you know, more clever use of expenditure of funds uh, on defence, on, on equipment, if you like, and a kind of um, shared understanding of this and a shared strategy between, between member states on the idea of cooperating more in terms of their expenditure on defence. Okay, well, as you said, the, the migrant influx is also in the background here. And in that case, uh, Europe has had to rely a lot on Turkey, of course, and uh, President mm. Erdogan to keep the numbers down reaching the EU. So to, to what degree is this, is this move an effort to take back a little more control of that issue? Yeah, I think there is that context. Obviously, since the coup in Turkey earlier this summer, uh, EU-Turkey relations have been, I suppose, on ice to some extent. Uh, they had been moving forward with the refugee plan and with accelerating EU at uh, the Turkey, Turkey's membership talks with the EU. Now, earlier this month, month uh, Turkey re reiterated its support for the refugee plan in saying that um, no one really knows where the Turkey-EU 
uh, discussions are going to go at this point. So we could see this as an attempt by the EU to kind of reinforce within itself its security capabilities uh, and in terms of, you know, its ability to police its own border. I think the other context, of course, here is, is Brexit. And uh, I mean, there's an irony here in that for years, Britain was very opposed to any kind of EU uh, cooperation in terms of defence. It always saw this as a preserve of NATO. Now that Britain is going to leave the European Union, that, if you like, has given a window of opportunity for those who want to push forward with defence to do so. So a lot of of the proposals we're going to see this week actually stem from Berlin and Paris. Even in the the few days following the Brexit Brexit vote late June, uh, there was a joint paper by the French and German foreign ministers, and they set out a plan at that point for what they call the European Security Compact, um, making the point that EU member states are deeply interconnected and they need to work together to to deal with security challenges. So we see Berlin and Paris and Italy as well are going to be very much in favour of this. And there is a sense that now with Brexit looming, that this may give new momentum towards a more common EU defence policy. Sure. From from an Irish perspective, it's between the the Apple tax judgment and now this security and and, and defence move. Is there a sense that that we're on the back foot at the moment? And and how much does it does that have to do with Brexit, as you as you said, and and the fact that we've lost a key ally at the table? Yeah, I think it's quite concerning for the government at the moment. What in terms of Ireland's relationship with Brussels over the last few months? Obviously, the Apple judgment. Um, has presented a huge challenge to Ireland's loyalty, if you like, to the EU project. Um, and Britain would have traditionally been a country that would have been very much uh, supporting the idea of tax sovereignty in whatever form, being a, being a national and national competence. Uh, and similarly now with um, with the, the, the emphasis on security. And of course, I suppose what this underlines is not only are, is Ireland going to lose a key ally in terms of a more free market, liberal uh, view of what the EU should be in terms of economics. Um, it, it is now, it, it's now becoming clear that for Ireland, and this is connected with geography, if nothing else, that we don't share some of the concerns that a lot of people in Europe do in terms of security, migration. We're not in Schengen. Um, and we'll be one of the few countries outside Schengen once Britain leaves. And so we are not part of a, of a lot of the security and justice and home affairs legislation in this whole area of security. So we're already a bit isolated on that. Uh, and second of all, the refugee crisis does not affect Ireland and a lot of countries in the west of the continent as much as those in the east and in central Europe. Uh, so I do think that when Enda Kenny arrives at this summit on Friday, his main aim will be presumably to keep tax off the agenda in any way because there had been... Uh, suggestions from France that maybe you know the clamps down on tax could be the could be something that the European Union uh, pushes forward with and, and communicates to its citizens, uh, but also that perhaps Ireland will be a little detached when it comes to this discussion on security, particularly uh, given its opposition to any kind of militarism. Now it does have some support that there's six countries in the EU that are ma- not members of NATO, um, and Austria is one of them that will be a strong ally of Ireland on this. And Irish officials are stressing that Ireland will not be forced to to comply or to engage with any of these measures that it doesn't want to. Uh, but in saying that, it is a sign of where the EU may be going in terms of how it sees its future uh, going forward after, after the British exit. Suzanne Lynch in Strasbourg, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. Guy Hedgeco joins us from the Torre de la Vega bull fiesta in the Spanish town of Torre de Cias, a small festival in northern Spain which traditionally features the killing of bulls. This year, in a landmark decision, the killing of bulls at the festival was banned. 
Guy, can you describe what you've seen there so far? Well, it's been a very unusual fiesta um, here for that reason, because they've outlawed the killing of the bull this year. Um, back in May, the local government um, said they weren't allowed to kill the bull anymore at this fiesta. Um, in many ways, it was a sort of a, a typical Spanish um, sort of a fiesta involving a bull in which a bull runs through the streets. Um, it ran through the streets of Tordesillas, out across a bridge, the river, uh, the river Duero, out onto some fields opposite where a lot of people from the, the town were waiting. And a lot of men um, riding horses uh, were waiting. Normally, those men riding horses in, in previous years, they would have then uh, speared the bull to death. Um, that is the aspect of it which was, uh, which was um, explicitly outlawed this time round. So the bull was just chased around the field. Uh, it came back round and then was chased back up towards the town. Um, there was a, a lot of a, a very chaotic scenes, um, and people from the village were sort of running around like crazy, pretty much like an ordinary, uh, any other ordinary uh, fiesta in Spain, but the difference being here, uh, certainly for, for this town, that the bull wasn't killed. It was, it was slaughtered afterwards, but it wasn't killed in public, at least. You could imagine that people mustn't have known what to do with themselves at the, at the end. Well, that's right, and, and pe people have been arms this year within the town about uh, about this ban. They're very angry about uh, this uh, banning of what was a tradition which they claim goes back to the 16th century. They say they've been holding this tradition of killing the bull uh, on the second, September, second Tuesday uh, of September every year um, since the 16th century, um, and th this ban breaks that tradition. So people were very angry when you spoke to them. I mean, they're quite hostile to the media as well. So people often weren't very keen to talk to, to me or to any other media. Um, but they're upset about this. They feel that the politicians have got involved in this needlessly and have ended this long-standing tradition. Um, but having said that, it was still quite a festive atmosphere. Um, there, there were some confrontations between animal rights activists. There was a, a sort of small, quite brave group of animal rights activists who had uh, made the trip from Madrid uh, to the town. It's a two-hour drive or so um, from Madrid to Torres. Yes, uh, they were sort of protected by a, a group of civil guards who had cordoned them off. I think the, the, the authorities were worried about what might happen. Um, if uh, they didn't separate them from the rest of the town. In years gone by, there have been violent scenes between animal rights protesters and people from this town. Um, so there were some angry scenes, um, a lot of chanting from the villagers saying that they, they want to maintain their tradition. Um, they're, they're angry at the situation. But at the same time, this was a fiesta. So people were sort of were celebrating as well. The whole thing ended with a huge downpour, I and mean, it's the heaviest rain I've seen for, for years in Spain. And it sort of washed the whole, uh, the whole thing away at the end. And a lot of people, I think, went home a bit earlier than they expected because the rain was so heavy. Can you explain to us the background to the decision to ban, ban the killing of the bulls and, and why it's seen as a, a symbolic development for animal rights in the country? Well, there has been mounting pressure from animal rights protesters um, and, and some politicians as well in recent years um, on Tordesillas, the authorities of Tordesillas, to, to end this tradition of killing the bull and spearing the bull in public. Um, and every year uh, when this uh, fiesta takes place, we've seen these, sort of, these quite tense scenes. And it's become almost a sort of political issue, more than, more than a, a, a village fiesta. It's become a sort of political event every year, uh, a flashpoint. 
um, between animal rights protesters and uh, the people in the village of, of Tordesillas. So it was, it was sort of coming to a head, and I think the, the authorities felt that they had to do something um, to end this. The, the decision that was taken back in May was by the regional government of Castilla y León, which is a, a region in the north of Spain where Torresillas is. Interestingly, it was a t- decision taken by the conservative local government there. Um, now, the popular party conservatives across Spain, for the most part, generally favour bullfights and these kinds of fiestas where you know where animals are killed and so on. They, they don't seem to have a problem with all that. But the pressure seems to have been such... Um, the social pressure, certain political pressure, that they felt the need to issue this ban on the killing of the bull. Um, and it was approved by other parties in the, um, in the local uh, parliament as well. And it, it angered the mayor of Tordesillas and the local people in Tordesillas a great deal. But it, it seems as if there's, there's not a great deal they can do because this seems to be the way things are moving in Spain at the moment. Tordesillas is seen as sort of the epitome of this kind of fiesta where animals are killed. That's partly because um, it's quite a big event. A lot of people go to it. It's partly because of the time of year it takes place. It's after the end of the summer months. So people are back at work and they're not on their holidays still. So it gets a bit more attention. But also because it's a very gory event normally. You know, in previous years, when the bull is, is speared to death, you know, this is broadcast on TV. It gets a lot of a lot of coverage. It's a very controversial event, um, perhaps more so than any other in Spain. Um, so it has become sort of the symbol of this kind of, uh, of town fiesta involving animals, and it's become a big target for animal rights protesters, and they see this ban as a major victory. Although we've come a long way from the romanticism of, of Hemingway and, and the sun also rises and the like when it comes to bullfighting, have attitudes uh, to the pursuit changed among the wider public, um, not including, obviously, those in the animal rights community? Well, I think they have. Um, I think that, that there is an, an increasing awareness of animal rights um, across Spain in general. Um, and you know, polls seem to show that, certainly. Um, and just last weekend, there was a big animal rights demonstration um, in Madrid. A lot of people turned out for it. It was one of the biggest such demonstrations that Spain has seen in recent years. But I think beyond the sort of the support for animal rights, I think bullfighting has another problem, which is that more and more people are just not interested in bullfighting. If you go to a bull ring um, in the summer, which is a, sort of the, the bullfighting season, you're, you're likely to see a lot of old people going into the bull ring quite a lot of tourists, but not many other people. And that's increasingly the, the, the case. You know, it, bullfighting is something for maybe for tourists and for pensioners. But it's not something that fires up the imagination of younger people, particularly people in, in the cities. Um, they have other things which interest them. There might be football. It might be um, the Internet or social networks and so on. But uh, bullfighting just seems to be slipping into, into irrelevance in that sense. It's got this generational problem. It's got other problems as well, uh, financial problems. Um, it's, it's struggled to bounce back from the, uh, the economic crisis um, of just a few years back. And so it's suffering for that reason as well. But, but it, it seems to be struggling on a number of fronts at the moment. And I think it's fair to say that it faces a very uncertain future. Guy Hedgeco in Torres Thank you very much. Thanks to today's contributors Simon Carswell, Suzanne Lynch and Guy Hedgeco. Thanks also to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and producer Declan Conlon. I'm Dave McKechnie. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. 